you know, I have this one buyer. He'll probably know if, if we do publish this, he'll probably know who he's, who I'm talking about. If he listens to this. <laughs> Shout out. Shout out. Yeah. <laughs> because he drags his feet all the time on, you know, pursuing practices and he's already missed out on two. Wait, and if I'm going to be Eric today, then I'm going to say what Eric says, which is what? Time and, kills all deals. Deals, yeah. And, and also, <laughs> what is it? Either. Oh, no, that's what I say. And I don't know if we can say that on here. <laughs> Go ahead. We said something else before say it. I don't want to say. Either. Either. The Texas, okay. <laughs> As the Texan on the call, I'm going to say what we're going to say in Texas, and that is, bleep me, Josh. <laughs> get off the pot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pull the trigger. <laughs> if you want it, get it, because there's a lot of yes. people looking right now, and, you know, it's right. like, <clears throat> get, get yourself in gear to get the information you need in order to pull the trigger. That's right. Right. Do not assume that you are the only person looking because that's a good way to miss out on your opportunity. Welcome to Getting Down to Business, the show about helping you run a successful dental practice every step of the way. In today's episode, we examine the process of determining the economic value of a business, also known as a valuation. Joining us on today's show is our valuation specialist, Rachel Robles. Rachel has been performing valuations for several years now and has helped many practice owners determine the worth of their business in a fair and competitive market. As Rachel will concur, determining the value of a business involves assessing various factors including the company's revenue, expenses, earnings, market position, and future prospects. Adding to the discussion is our business broker consultant, Kelly Yardman. Kelly has a wealth of experience in facilitating the sale of a practice once the valuation has been completed and is on the market. We're excited to share this episode with you and hope that it will provide a framework for how we value a dental practice. Now, let's get down to business. I'm going to just go ahead and start off with a little bit of a question for you guys. Uh, have you guys heard of King Solomon before? Mm -hmm. Okay. So he wrote a book in the Bible called Ecclesiastes. And in the book, um, there's this long discourse about there's a time for everything. You know, there's a time to plant and a time to reap, and there's a time to live and a time to die. And there's all of these different times and seasons. Obviously, people get valuations at different stages in their their career. Uh, either buyers are getting them because they want to know what a practice is actually worth, and sellers are getting them because they want to know what they can actually sell them for. That's kind of my first question for Rachel um, is, can you give me an example of, you know, when, when do people typically get valuations um, and do they tend to get them at the right time? Is there a right time to get a valuation? There's a time for everything, right? So when's the best time to get a valuation? The best time would be not when you're pressed to sell. <clears throat> I mean, there may be emergency situations where you need evaluation because you need to sell immediately. And, and that does happen uh, probably more often than people realize. But 
Uh, getting evaluation before you're absolutely ready to sell, you know, I've already got one foot out the door, um, hinders your ability to make any material changes. You know, because our valuations are based on historical information. And if you get your valuation at the time that you're ready to sell, it's based on, you know, historical before today. However, if you give yourself an opportunity to have some time between your valuation and your sale, then you get to make possibly and hopefully material changes to improve your value between the time that we value it and you're actually ready to sell. That can be improving your top line, improving your expenses, um, but it can make some, some significant um, changes in your value. So it sounds like to me anyways, like if I was a dentist and like I'd been working for, you know, decades, I would imagine that there would be sort of a point when my practice would reach a peak and my, I would probably be generating the most amount of, you know, revenue. I'd be doing the best that I could possibly do. And I kind of want to sell my business before things start to decline. It sounds like it's, it's better to not put that off to the last minute. It's better to kind of get the valuation when things are moving along, because that's going to help me sell my practice, hopefully at a higher rate than if I were just putting things off until the last minute. If, when things are good, all of the, uh, the, the return to labor, the return to capital, those things are all um, healthy and robust. Well, if you wait until you've already kind of started to slow down, you've already decided I don't want to work four days a week anymore, or I don't want to work all day, or, you know, I don't want to maintain this schedule and you've already kind of, um, let off a little bit on the gas, then, like I said, our valuation is based on, you know, historical financials and your business based on those, that historical, um, data has started to decline already. So we're taking that into account. So if you want maximum value, then you don't want to let it decline before your sale. That makes perfect sense. Um, and there's another question I want to ask you, and I don't mean to stump you on this. So if you're not sure, we can always, you know, take this out, but are valuations ever given for litigation purposes? Yes. Can you talk um, about that briefly? Well, and this, I won't be able to talk to, um, you know, I, I haven't experienced a situation yet where I'm involved in a valuation for purposes like that, but um, it can be because of a divorce. It can be because of a, you know, business situation that went sour. Like a partner is buying from another partner or buying someone out um, and they're going to court for that. I wanted to add something to your timing, um, you know, your little timing thing. And I don't know if either one of you are fans of Jerry Seinfeld. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yes, you can exclude this part, but I have fallen asleep every night for the last week to the Seinfeld show. <laughs> so do I. I love so do it. I. Um, so when he was interviewed about why he ended up ended the show, 
Um, one of the things that he said is for me, this is all about timing. My life is all about timing as a comedian. My sense of timing is everything. I wanted to end the show on the same kind of peak. We've been doing it on for years. I wanted the end to be from a point of strength. I wanted the end to be graceful. And I think that that is a huge part of why people should get valuations before they want to sell. They want to be able to end on a high note. Well, and with some control, right? Yeah. yeah. Not because they have to, like you said, not because they're, they're forced into it because of a health situation or because they are just tired of doing it. Right. I have a dentist right now that's in that situation. He has had many health situations that have prevented him from really um, being able to work as effectively as he was doing before. And he can't sell because his practice is not valued what he needs in order to retire. So he's forced to continue working, even though his health is, is not so great. Do you think that there's a lot of docs out there that are sort of in the dark about these kind of things? And then, you know, they don't really have anybody advising them on, on these types of, decisions that could you know if they if they had been advised if they'd had the knowledge they could have said like this doc for example if he had had somebody and obviously you have to listen but if he had had somebody you know giving him good counsel on looking at the future and getting things you know valued early on and it sounds like you know there's a lot of docs that need help with with these complicated you know transition strategies and how to get the ball started. I would guess that most of them are in the dark. Oh, that much? Not, okay. not some. I would guess that most of them are in the dark because it's it's not something that you worry yourself with until it's time. And unfortunately, that's too late to make a difference. How do you arrive at a fair price? How is that determined? And and skip, I'm going to skip to the end of the valuation process. You know, we go through many, many, many steps to get to what we feel is an appropriate range of value, but how we settle on what we think is a fair price includes a reasonability test where we measure the free cash flow and that free cash flow has to be, you know, in an adequate range where the buyer would be able to qualify to the best of our ability um the buyer would qualify for funding you know the bank wouldn't have any issue lending based on our calculation of free cash flow and if our calculated value does not meet that reasonability test then it's not a fair price is there is there often a disparity um in terms of practice value meaning that, you know, let's just say I'm the doctor. I'm I'm ready to retire. I have uh, asked you to perform evaluation. You've come back and, you know, you've told me my practice is only worth, you know, um, 750,000. I thought it was, well, I thought it was 1.5 million. Is that something that you see often where uh, the, people's, the people that you're performing the evaluation for are maybe a little bit let down or even shocked? that what they thought was worth a lot more is actually worth a lot less? Um, unfortunately, that happens a lot. 
where the seller is, I don't want to say let down or unpleasantly surprised, but where our value um, comes in lower than their expectation, that does happen uh, relatively often. That can be from multiple factors where, you know, our valuation um, takes into consideration multiple methods and a lot of people will estimate their practices value based on just the revenue that they're generating. And our multiple valuation methods can significantly differ than, you know, from a calculation of just a percentage of revenue. So if someone had a, a big practice, you know, they generate over a million dollars and they just assume that their practice is worth a certain percentage of revenue, our opinion can be significantly different than that based on their practice's actual earnings. And as you know, we talked about before, if they have been a little bit lax on things like expenses or let their top line revenue kind of slack a little bit because of their schedule or something, then our our opinion of fair market value and their personal opinion of their practices value could be significantly different. Do you also take into account the condition of like the machinery within the office? If it's old and outdated, does that affect the valuation? Yes, it does. I mean, it, it may also affect their ability to market their practice and be as um, as enticing, you know, because someone buying in likely it's the same idea as as listing your house. You know, if is it a fixer upper or has it been recently renovated? You know, you're going to get a lot more attention potentially with a move in ready home versus one that not everybody wants to take on a fixer upper. So is your practice move in ready or is your practice a fixer upper? And if it's a fixer upper, you know, you have to take into consideration <laughs> that a lot of dentists, because they want the move in ready, if they do consider purchasing the fixer upper, they're going to have additional debt to make mm -hmm. that practice into a practice that they want. Uh, are there, are there ever scenarios where um, we, we talked about this for a different business, um, uh, there were certain liabilities um, in, in, in this example, it was gift cards that a um, business had not included. They weren't keeping track of them. So the people that were, you know, they had all these gift cards that they'd um, sold to, to customers that hadn't been, you know, realized yet. So um, it was, you know, it wasn't really something that you guys could just look over and be like, oh, well, you've got all these, you know, all this, cash out there that hasn't been brought into the business through gift cards, you know, that's a liability. Are there, are there ever situations in the, in where there's like liabilities um, that are kind of out there? Maybe patients have paid for certain services in advance or anything like that. Does that ever come into play? Um, I think it does. Uh, I haven't had a practice that I had significant, like a dental practice where they had like Rachel, if you have like payment plans, like prepaids, like when we did the one it would that be, we did recently. Right. It would be like, for example, an orthodontic office where they paid in advance for services that they will receive over the next six months or something like that. Or even a practice that does Invisalign. So Invisalign is similar to orthodontics. Mm -hmm. And it could be a general practice that does Invisalign. So they have like that prepaid aspect of their revenue that comes in 
similar to orthodontic. But Kelly, tell me if I'm right in also the dental industries situations where you may have some outstanding liability could be where the selling doc sets up their agreement of finishing treatment or doing retreatment. That's part of their um, purchase agreement. Yeah, so they so those are um, paid to the selling doctor already. Um, so when we do the purchase agreement, we always add in the um, the treatment that the doc the selling doc has to finish. Um, and then also we have to consider retreatments because there are some types of things that fail in dentistry. And a lot of doctors will provide a warranty on those things. And so a patient will maybe something happened to their crown or it broke or, you know, they have a crack or something happened and they come in and it's the new dentist dentist now. And so there's something in the purchase agreement that always goes over that of what happens when something like that happens, who takes over the care. And a lot of times it's the, it's the, it's the buyer that takes over the care and the seller has to reimburse the buyer because the seller has already been paid on that treatment mm -hmm. and for those devices. And so, you know, the, the seller has to basically give, you know, some kind of um, compensation to the buyer because they provided um, the, the retreatment of the service that the seller guaranteed. Um, but we always put a time limit on that. Mm -hmm. um, we don't think like after three years that someone should be coming in with a failure of a device. Um, that's usually a patient cause failure, not the device or the uh, doctor that did that. Um, it's, that's a long time to go um, before having a failure. So we do have things in place in the purchase agreement to where people, you know, can get the treatment they need um, in a time frame that they need it. But there's always something that has to be worked around between the buyer and the seller regarding payment of who who gets paid on that. Mm -hmm. I think that's a, a typical um, example of a liability. Yeah. yeah. Wow. There's a lot that goes into acquiring all this information. There's a lot of different moving pieces, a lot of things to take into account for. So um, all that to, to say, who is really qualified to give a valuation? Who is qualified to perform a valuation? Mm -hmm. um, like what are the, um, if I was, you know, shopping around to get a valuation, why would I choose Hindley Bergmeier Group? Well, for uh, Eric has a lot of experience. <laughs> and I don't know other firms what their um, credentials are or what are all the methods that they use. I can speak for ours. We use many methods, multiple methods. We use a lot of information, a lot of background information. We learn as much as we possibly can about the practice or the business that we're selling. I don't have a credential yet, but that's my 2024 resolution. Um, but Eric does have a, um, a certified valuation analyst 
credential. So he went through NACVA where he, you know, has his CPA. And so he went that route in order to get his CVA. Um, I'm not a CPA. I don't have a financial education. I have a science education. <laughs> so I'm going to go through ASA, American Society of Appraisers, and get my accredited member credential where it's not exactly the same because it doesn't come from the same um doesn't come from the same credentialing body but it's the same information and so basically we back up our opinion with educational proof well and also josh i mean that's a very interesting question like why would somebody come to us because there's other you know companies that offer valuation services um and we have re-evaluated some valuations um, that have come to us through due diligence processes. And then in those types of scenarios, sometimes we come up with the same value. And so somebody could argue, well, if you're coming up with the same value as this other, as this other company who offered this valuation for free, why should I go through you? I, I think you know, from my point of view and from doing this for many years now, I'm not a evaluator. I do facilitate the practice acquisition phase of the, of the sale. Um, and I've worked with Eric for many, many years since almost day one of him um, having his own business. Our value, we can defend in a court of law. Now, that means that, for instance, if I'm a buyer and I go in to buy a practice from Henley Bergmeier Group and I know that they did the valuation on the practice and I paid a million dollars for that practice based on their valuation and I go in there and I'll, about three months in, I'm not, I'm not reaping the same benefit the previous, the previous owner did. Like I'm not doing the same. So I get in my head that it's not me. It's the seller. They gave me the wrong information. The valuation was wrong. This is not valued this what I thought it was. I so what I'm going to do is I'm going to get angry and I'm going to go after that seller and I'm going to go after the Henley Bergmeier Group um, because I think the valuation is incorrect. Well, we can defend that valuation in court and and pretty much most times a court of law is going to see that our valuation is correct, that that a buyer could be going in there and not doing the same things that the seller did. And that's why they're not reaping the same benefit. And that's the reason why they're not making the same amount of money, not because the valuation is incorrect. Um, also, we give kind of sometimes we give ranges, sometimes we give like a fixed amount that what we think that the, that the practice is worth. And some people will go to banks and say, I want to know what the value is with the bank. And the bank is going to give a big range of value too. But they're giving their value based on their own metrics that they go by. Um, and they want to lend the most amount of money on the business. So they will value the business at the most that they will lend on the business. So that's not really saying that's what the value is, that the bank is telling you what they'll lend on it. And so they also ask us for what we think the value is, because then they base what they'll lend on it based on that as well. 
They always want to know, how did you come up with that price? I'm not saying everybody should come to us, even though I would really love it. But I think getting a professional valuation done by a CBA is very important or an ASA is very, very important um, to make sure that you know what the value is of your business or practice. Speaking of value, the term fair market value is obviously a very important term. And it's, uh, to me at least, it's the number that you arrive at when you finish your valuation. I guess without, without getting too, too much in the weeds here, just, we'll just keep it simple. You know, what, what is fair market value? What does it suggest to the buyer? Um, in the simplest terms, a fair market value is the value at which a property would change hands between a willing buyer and a willing seller, neither of which, as Eric would say, have a gun to their head. <laughs> neither of which are motivated or are under any significant compulsion to buy or sell immediately and their um, dollar value is not motivated um, in that way. And then both buyer and seller have full access to all information about the business that is going to change hands. So as you mentioned, the, the situation we talked about earlier, I mean, that doctor hasn't sold yet, but he, um, he may at some point be willing to let his practice go at even a lower value than what we end up valuing at because he is motivated as in he just can't go to work anymore. You know, so for example, if our fair market value was a million dollars, he may be willing to accept 75% of that in order to get out faster, right? So his actual sale price would be lower than our opinion of fair market value because he was under compulsion to sell. Does that make sense? Or if Absolutely. someone overpays, arguably, right, based on our unmotivated, unbiased opinion of value, they may be um, more motivated to purchase something and overpay for it because it's just exactly what they wanted. You know, I'm going to buy. Right location. Right. Right. It's worth more to them to pay a little bit more to get exactly what they want. That would be, you know, an example of motivation where they pay more than our unbiased opinion of the fair market value. Awesome. Yeah. How do you how do you take into account? Um, I, I guess you'd call it like customer loyalty. Like, is there ever a risk if somebody gets a valuation? You know, you know, you're looking at certain trends of of revenue in and, and expenses and all that stuff and patient flow. You know, is there ever is there ever a risk where like when the main doctor retires or sells the practice? How do you know that the patients are going to stick there? Um, is there is there anything that you guys kind of look at as far as how do we know that once this practice is sold that the, the customers will keep showing up? Does that ever come into play? Yes, and I'll, I'll give a few examples, and then I'm sure Kelly will also have examples on how to answer this question. There are lots of things that go into it during our valuation process. We look at many risk factors. For example, how long has the business been in the same location? How long has the business um, been open? You know, well, they've been open for 27 years, 13 of which have been in exactly the same location. Those are great things. If the re if the if the business has been um, purchased in the last three years, and in that three years, 
they moved locations, those would be considered a little bit more risky, right? Because your patients have recently undergone, you know, some change. So we would consider that in our overall risk assessment. Also, we advise new buyers not to make changes in the first year. That means, um, you know, you do your best to offer the same services. You don't make changes to your staff, meaning offer the same benefits even because, you know, when you go in to see the dentist, you also see your hygienist. You also see the same front office girl. You know, you're, you're used to the same services and as many things as, as that um, office can stay the same, especially during the transition period. If the patient comes in and the only thing that's different is the dentist, but they still do a great job, the likelihood that they're going to leave and go find another office and have to get to know somebody else is unlikely. As long as they have a great experience, they're going to stay. Yeah, just to piggyback on that, Rachel, I mean, when I go to the dentist, I have gone like last year I had, I had a treatment plan and I literally saw the dentist and I have gone in the last, I want to say 12 months, I have gone to the dentist for my treatment plan, probably, um, five times. And in that five times I've seen the hygienist more than the dentist. Mm -hmm. So if you want your patients to stay, they really have the relationship with the hygienist, not really the dentist. The hygienist is the one that stays with you the whole hour, working on your teeth, talking to you about her family. You're talking to her about your family. If you can get a word out, you know, the dentist comes in afterwards just to check, to make sure everything's okay. And that's only sometimes that's only if there's, there's a reason to do that. So if you're buying another practice, if you're buying a practice, the best thing to do is to make sure your staff is happy. That's how you're going to retain your patients. You want to make sure that there are absolutely no changes in how you handle your staff um, so that they are happy to move to the new dentist and they won't leave and they will provide the same amount of great service that they're doing with the patients. This might seem like a very obvious question, but why do sellers often want more than buyers are willing to pay? Um, because if they're of retirement age, then they feel like they're gonna have to live off of that. <laughs> yeah. And because they are emotionally attached and invested in the business that they may have had for the last 30 or 35 years or something like that, you know? So it's not just a business to them, it's their life's work, you know? So they're emotionally attached to it. So, so they're going to want more than maybe what other people see value in. Yep, great. Okay, so we talked about what fair market value is and how you determine the fair market value. I guess, is there anything else on that subject of fair market value that we that we skipped over? Or is there anything else that we want to add about fair market value, how we determine it? Or um, I would just point out that our opinion of, of fair market value may not be the ask price, right? We talked about fair market value 
um, being unmotivated and unbiased, a listing price or an asking price is not necessarily in line with fair market value because an ask price can totally be based on motivation, right? If it's someone that needs to sell tomorrow, they may be listing their practice at 70% of the fair market value because they want to get out tomorrow. And if it is um, someone that's not really motivated to sell and they think they can get more than it's worth, then why not list it for higher? And then that comes, you know, the art of negotiation. <laughs> I would imagine it's pretty rare unless, like you said, time constraint that they list under the fair market value. In, in the two and a half years or so that I've been helping Eric, I can think of two for sure valuations that I've done where the person that I was valuing for knew that they were going to ask for less. They were very motivated. Um, but typically that's not my area. You know, I do the valuation and then I'm pretty much done. So Kelly would be able to speak more to trends. Yeah. So most people, once Cheryl and Eric talk to them about what the value is, most of the time they will list what they will list, they will ask for it and then they won't budge. So once the value is established and they say, okay, we're willing to list at that price, that'll be the price point. Someone comes in, they look at the practice, they're like, hmm, the seller's like, no, I'm not, mm, I'm going to go with this price. I'm going to keep on until somebody comes along and offers me this amount because the seller knows that we valued it based on all of these methods that Rachel mm -hmm. and Eric have, you know, put together and they know that that's the value and they're not willing to go any less. Now, Rachel had said just now that she's seen twice where they have asked, you know, for less or that they went ahead and, and said it was okay to um, buy for less. But I've seen other people, there have been other times where people wanted more. Um, I had a situation, which is like funny. I, it's just a funny situation where we valued a practice and the bank wouldn't finance the buyer for the whole amount because the buyer didn't have liquidity, meaning the buyer had a lot of debt and not a lot of assets, not a lot of, you know, she, she needed to pay off some things. And so they wanted to do only lend a part, lend it, lend a certain amount towards the practice. And then they wanted the seller to have, a, you know, like to carry back a loan. Seller didn't want to do that. She did not want to be the bank. She did not want to take on any responsibility of having a loan, you know, in addition to what the bank would pay, pay or pay for the practice. But she got it in her head that the bank thought that that was what the practice was worth. Oh. So in her head, she was thinking the bank's not lending on the total amount because my practice isn't worth that, um, which was not the case at all. It was just that the buyer couldn't buy at that price point um yeah. the buyer so, could qualify right and so she, they ended up the the deal ended up falling apart because of that because you know she thought that her practice wasn't worth that and the buyer couldn't really buy the practice at any other 
you know, she needed her to carry some of the, some of the amount. So the, the deal ended up going through or uh, falling apart. Then we have another buyer that comes in and he wants to buy the practice and he's okay with the amount that the amount that we've established. However, when we do valuations, there's a lot of times that when we have a listing that Rachel will update a valuation because the practice is doing better than it did before. So like, let's just say it's been listed for six months. We did the valuation and then six months later, Rachel will update it. And in some cases, when she updates it, it's worth more. Now it's valued more. So mm -hmm. now this valuation came in at more when this guy was, you know, interested in purchasing it. Now the seller's like, well, you know, I don't know about this guy. You know, she's going back and forth on this guy. Great guy, known him for a long time. I think he would have been a great, you know, buyer of this practice. So because she has her doubts or whatever, she decides that I'm going to, I'm going to say, I'm not going to, I'm not going to sell it to him for what we're saying it's worth. I'm going to up it. I'm going to ask for more money from him. So there's sometimes situations like that happen where, and in those situations, we ended up terminating the relationship with her because we didn't think, feel that it was appropriate for her to do that. You know, she could lower the price, but she would need to lower it for everybody. She could up the price, but she would need to do that for everybody. Um, we didn't feel like it was very appropriate for her to to do that and and both of these people that were involved in as the buyers were people that we had relationships with and so you know we do take very much into consideration you know those types of situations too and there's times that we will walk away from an agreement with a doctor that may be unreasonable with what how they price how they price their practice before we kind of wind things down, um, the the process of 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 performing the valuation um, or the steps, if you will, can you break down? You know, or can you just talk about the steps that you take uh, when you when you do perform when you start? You know, when you start to determine fair market value, what are some of the things you look at? Um, you know, the last few episodes have been on financial statements. Uh, the income statement, for example, is the income statement closely referenced um, when you perform your uh, valuation? Um, what are you looking at on the income statement? Do you kind of just start with the practice revenues, look at the expenses, um, you know, try to figure out what their gross practice income is going to be, you know, things like where does the where do things like return to labor as far as what the doctor is getting paid factor into your um, your your uh, valuation things like that? Um, yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm going to try to give a brief overview of the valuation process. Um, we take um, to begin with, we like to use five years of information if it's available to us and if it's appropriate to use. And I'll just start this by saying in every step of the process, there's an it depends. 
right? You have to decide each step of the process. Is this applicable or not? Um, so is it applicable to use five years of information? It depends. Is it good information? Um, but uh, I'll just try to give an example of like the most simple and perfect valuation. We would use five years of data. We would um, start with the tax return. It's a legal document. And then from the tax return, we're going to get more detailed information from the corresponding uh, financial statements. The profit and loss statement, they show exactly what's on the tax return, but in a more detailed uh, breakout. Then um, we'll look at trends. We'll ask questions to identify discretionary income and expenses so that we can get to what we would consider a normalized 12-month period. We use um, a weighted average. Oh, again, this is like the most perfect example. It doesn't always work out like this, but we like to use a weighted average of the five-year period, meaning the most recent year has a more weighting. It has more impact on the average than say five years ago did. We have then the opportunity to omit years if we need to do that. For example, a lot of businesses that we value using the last five years um, have been significantly impacted by COVID. If we can justify that it makes, um, if we can justify that it's appropriate to remove the COVID year and not have it impact the valuation, then we will do that. And in a lot of cases that is what we do. And that's like the first half of the valuation is getting to a real good normalized 12 month picture of income and expenses that we would expect going forward. Then using that information, we apply um, our findings there to the different multi um, valuation methods. That's going to be asset approach, income approach and market approach. And we'll decide what methods you know that fall into those categories what methods we're going to use based on the business that we're valuing sometimes it may not be appropriate to use certain methods and then we will blend those methods to get to what we consider a fair market value of course like i mentioned earlier making sure that our value is reasonable against um you know our test of free cash flow did I answer all the questions? Oh, um, I missed one. You mentioned um, return to labor. We do consider in you know cases like our dental practices, especially return to labor is what you pay the owner doc, right? It's the owner operator. In a dental practice, the the owner doc's income is discretionary. They can pay themselves way less than what um, a fair market value wage to them may be because they are the owner and they can choose to do that. In our valuation, we represent the owner doc's income, not as a discretionary number, but as a calculation of what a you know, any non-owner doc would be paid. And, and um, right now that's 30% of their production. In a general dental practice, most practices income or, or production is split 70% to doc, 30% to hygiene. So 
we use their practice reports to confirm that that's the case or make adjustments where necessary. And then we calculate return to labor. I know I'm talking fast. <laughs> we calculate their return to labor to be 30% of what they produce and then use that as the, um, the docs compensation to make sure that we are setting aside enough to cover um, the doc's salary. So we do take that, we do um, calculate return to labor a certain way, and then we do use that in our valuation to make sure that we have set aside adequate compensation. The whole point of the valuation, as far as I'm understanding it, is you know you want to get to the present value of the practice, and that's that's something that changes uh, every few years. It's probably a good idea if you're getting a valuation to update it. If you haven't sold in five years and you got your valuation five years ago, um, it's probably going to be a good idea to keep that current so that it reflects the present. Right. And every well, and also is changing, right? In the five years, we're going to see if, um, I mean, hopefully you're going to see a trend upward, right? You're going to see their revenue going up by a certain amount each year. And the longer you wait, um, you may start to see that decline a little bit, right? Because they let off on their schedule some. They just don't work as much as they did before. Maybe they don't offer all the same services that they did before. So there's going to be a difference in value, very likely, if you got a valuation five years ago and if you got a valuation today. And to keep that you know, in mind when you or if you have an associate. So if you are um, a dental owner, and you have an associate working in your practice that wants to eventually buy your practice, it's great to have evaluation done now. And then you can see where your value is. Like, let's just say, for instance, you own a practice, you want to bring someone on board to work, to do an associate buy-in. And it'd be really good for you to get evaluation on your practice the way it is now. So that as the person starts producing in your practice, you have the double you have you and you have them producing, the value is gonna significantly change at the time that they're gonna buy in. So they can buy, they could like, let's say they say that they're gonna buy in within five years. So after a year, they buy in 10%, they, then they buy in 20%, then they go in 30% all the way up to then they finally buy in 100%. You can establish what that buy-in amount would be if you get evaluation beforehand so that you can see as you go through the process, what that would be over a period of time. I'd get a value, like some people are scared. They're like, oh, I don't wanna get a valuation now because I don't know what I'm gonna hear or I'm, I don't know what it's gonna be worth. You know, what if it's a bad number? Well, that's great. You yeah, wanna know opportunity. if it's a bad number right now because right. then you can make improvements to make the number be more acceptable for when you wanna sell. Right. I um, I mean, it's never a fun conversation to have with someone that our opinion of their value is lower than, you know, what they were hoping for. In their opinion, yeah. The number that they've had in their head for however long. But I think it's great because it identifies for them their opportunity. And in a lot of times, I can I can pinpoint several things that are bringing your value down. And in identifying those areas of opportunity, they now have the ability to hopefully make some significant changes that would give them better results at the time that they do want to sell.
So we offer, we also offer that, you know, to our clients that, you know, come and come and say, we want evaluation done. We're not ready to sell. We just want to see what it's worth now and get some recommendations on how to improve. We will do that with, with clients. Mm-hmm. So, you know, doctor gets evaluation. They're like, wow, this isn't as much as I thought, um, but I'm not ready to retire. You know, uh, maybe I need to look at either uh, producing more or lowering expenses. Those are two drivers that will affect the valuation, correct? Yes. Any other thoughts on valuations? Um, this is a topic I'm sure we'll return to again at some point. Um, One of the things that I do want to want to point out to in the valuation or in the valuation process and what we looked at when we looked at the um, the um, cash flow statement and the profit and loss statement. And when you look at salaries of your staff and you look at it as an overhead expense and, you know, if somebody if you're a doc coming in or you're a doc that wants evaluation done and you're looking at your um, expenses and maybe possibly saying, well, I have a little bit of time. I can, I can improve my value. Um, I think it's important to look, to not really look at that uh, salary expense for your employees as being something that you want to adjust because that is something that's running your practice. Like your, your salaries you really can't adjust the salaries unless somebody leaves and you hire somebody else um, at a lower rate. You can't really adjust salaries and you want people to be there for a long time. You want to be able to say to a potential buyer that you have people that have been there for very long periods of time. But how you can improve is by increasing your top line. So you can create a better percentage in your salaries and wages, you know, between that, those percentages that we talked about when we looked at the PL and, and we looked at the salaries as a percentage of revenue. If we increase the top line, those percentages then adjust to lower. So those are things that need to be thought about when we look at improvement on a practice and how they can improve their, their, uh, percentages and ratios and stuff like that to get into a better um, selling position. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you found this episode educational and learned something new. If you're thinking about having a valuation or due diligence report performed for your business or want more information about the Hinley Bergmeier Group, you can reach us at our office by calling 505 299 8383. Again, it's 505-299-8383. You can also schedule a meeting with Kelly Yardman by visiting our website, www.hindleybergmeiergroup.com. Thank you for investing the time to listen to our show, and we hope you'll join us next time on Getting Down to Business.